Let's open in prayer together. Father, as we again approach familiar territory, we've, many of us have sung these songs pretty much all our lives. Many of us, Lord, are familiar with the outlines of the glory of God coming through Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to not become so overly familiar that we miss out on thinking through the implications, as Tim has already reminded us. I pray, Lord, that you would open our, the eyes of our hearts, that we might see and appreciate and treasure Jesus Christ all the more. And I pray that we might, again, be filled with wonder, amazement, and that we might marvel at the greatness of you, our God, that you might be glorified and honored in all we do. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Glory to God in the highest is the declaration made by an angelic choir the night in which Jesus was born. And that response, I'm going to suggest to you, was an appropriate response to make. It was the proper response to make because glorifying God is the appropriate response to every act of God. That all of God's works are meant to display His glory. That is, it's meant to display God's infinite beauty, God's infinite worth, and the entire expanse of creation and every event of human history was designed by God to glorify himself and to set forth the beauty of his manifold perfections, to set forth his infinite greatness of his worth. According to Romans 11, as I've said in previous weeks, as we were looking through our series on Advent sermon series, All things are from God, all things are to God, and all things are for God and through God. So therefore, glory is to be given to God forever and ever. I'd like us to take a few moments here, and I want to think about this theme of the glory of God, as we've looked in the previous weeks about the glory of God the Father, the glory of God the Son, the glory of God the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to step back and we're going to look at the glory of God in terms of its larger perspective from the beginning to the end of time, if you, as it were, and I'd like to use as it, uh, a, an analogy of a puzzle. Now, I happen to have with me here a couple of puzzles, uh, popular among certain members of our family. I am not one of those people. Uh, my interest in puzzles lasts about as long as you put the outward, piece, outward edge pieces together. When I've completed that part as much as I can do, then my contribution has ended. And uh, we have one of these uh, puzzles here. This is about 500 pieces. It has a bunch of teacups on there, rather complicated when they all start looking the same. Uh, then we have another one. This is an interesting one. This was down in the basement. No one's touched this in 40 years, I guess. But anyway, this is called aromatherapy puzzle. It has a candle with it. So anyway, <laughs> that's only a, a 300 pieces. That's uh, long, more, more along the lines of, of what I would like to do. I'd like to think of this, this statement made by the angels. Glory to God in the highest. Think of that as a piece of a puzzle. And think of that piece of the puzzle that was declared on the night of which Christ was born as one small piece in a massive jigsaw puzzle called the plan of redemption of God. Are you with me? So if you think about what's the first thing you do with a puzzle, you start at the beginning, right? You start at an edge. So we have the 
the, 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 what will be for you the left edge. You start here, and we're going to think of the puzzle being constructed going from the left to the right. And so at the beginning of the puzzle, this massive puzzle with millions and millions of pieces, if, if you think of it that way, that these border pieces of the puzzle depict God who exists and has existed from eternity all by himself. And he exists in absolute glory and absolute honor. And therefore, he is enjoying endless communion and love between the members of the Godhead. That's the beginning of the puzzle all the way over here. Way on out there. Beginning of time. Before the beginning of time. And then the puzzle depicts the triune God as the next beginning part of the plan of redemption. And it has the triune God creating everything. Creating the world and all that's in it. The entire universe. All it contains. And some point after that, having, having uh, created mankind in his image, soon thereafter came another significant part of this puzzle that keeps coming and being developed and putting all the pieces together, and that was the fall of man, where the two humans that God had made refused to glorify God. They were not content in being humans. They wanted to be God themselves. So therefore, they sort of play, place the, uh, set the pace for us, and so we followed in their steps, and therefore we continue, in a sense, uh, to see the response of God to the fall of man, to the rejection of glorifying him, and to notice that now there begins this weaving of a scarlet uh, line, as it were, that now appears in the puzzle. It's all over the, the, the puzzle. There's all sorts of indications of this, I would call it a scarlet uh, theme that moves through the puzzle. And that scarlet, those scarlet pieces are representing the gracious, redemptive plan and purpose of God. That he is not just going to leave his creation in its brokenness and its fallenness. He has a plan, a plan of redemption. He's going to reconstruct it and be, rebuild it. And the scarlet pieces, that, which represent the, all sorts of predictions, all sorts of promises about a Messiah, all sorts of uh, provisions that the Hebrew scriptures uh, give for us, they are recorded in this weaving of this scarlet lines as they come through the puzzle. And then it, of course, concentrates and builds into this focal point where the incarnational ministry of Jesus Christ. They're all just converging right there. And Christ, it culminates in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the scarlet lines continue to depict God at work as it further goes past that convergence of all those scarlet threads, the scarlet threads continue on as God works through his spirit in his church, in the program of redemption that he is committed to doing as he sees lives changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that God seeks to be glorified in his church as he seeks to make those he's purchased with his blood from every tribe and language and people, he designed them to be a kingdom of priests unto himself. That's what God is doing. We see those lines continue on. Now, there's two things I want to mention about if we think about this large program of God, compare it to a big puzzle. Number one is this. Uniqueness about this puzzle, redemptive puzzle, is it contains enough pieces to complete the perimeter and to give us just an idea of what the end of the puzzle will look like when it's finally all constructed and put together. And the Bible gives us just the, the, the outlines and the details, just a small glimpse of what the end of time will look like just enough to get the, the edge piece in there. But there's a lot of empty space before that, as you know. The right side of the perimeter 
Let's see, no. Yeah, the right side of the perimeter of the puzzle depicts, of course, all of this, this sense of which that we call, the Bible calls, the consummation, the end of all things. Someday will be, uh, will be put together as the program of redemption finally comes to its conclusion. Now, the puzzle does not contain all these pieces in the midst here because it's depicting the current events and those future events of God's redemptive program that are still unfolding. As it were, we receive another piece of those every day that goes along. We see another piece. Here's another piece I can put in there. That was yesterday, so I put that one in there. And the perimeter pieces provide us outlines of the plans and purposes of God revealed in the Bible. And it's interesting to notice that once you put that perimeter together, and we can fill in a lot of it going from this way on this way, we see glory at the beginning. The glory of God existing all by himself. And at the end of it, we see glory, the glory of God. And of course, in everywhere in between, we're reminded of the glory of God. It reminds me of this end piece over here that Habakkuk said, the prophet Habakkuk referred to this, what it's going to look like in the second chapter of his book. He said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Glory, glory, glory. The glory of God will cover the whole earth the whole universe. Now, the second thing about this particular puzzle I want to draw to your attention, and I'm going to move on from this analogy. It will not be my entire sermon, so bear with me here. Uh, just a couple more pieces I want to put in together here. Uh, is to think about that this idea of the declaration, glory to God in the highest, if you think of that as a piece of the puzzle, this is an unusual puzzle if you think about it, because that piece, glory to God in the highest, can be put anywhere and everywhere all over this jigsaw puzzle of God's redemptive plan. You say, now wait a minute, I've never done a puzzle like that. Any puzzles we get, they always have these little weird pieces. You're looking for the one with the unique one that goes out this way, goes up this way, goes out this way, it's got a straight piece down here, right? You're looking for all these weird shapes in the pieces. But the puzzle piece I'm trying to suggest to you, glory to God in the highest, is that which can be placed and is placed on top of all that God is doing in his program of redemption. Glory to God in the highest is the theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. It just happens to be that which is repeated on the night in which Christ was born. But it's the piece that belongs everywhere. Now, are you with me? That's the overall piece of the big puzzle. Now, this morning I want us to draw our attention as we conclude this Advent series to reflect upon the completion. I want to think about this outline, this edge pieces over here of the consummation. God's work of restoration, seeing it finally brought to its completion. And what does the Bible teach about the final pieces of the puzzle of God's program of redemption? Well, in order to think about that, first of all, I want to say in point number one that our future glory of God is designed to be put on display. The glory of God will be put on display. Now, here we're talking about, you can turn in your Bible now to uh, the second chapter of Titus. Titus chapter 2, page 1418 in your Bible, page 1418 in the Pew Bible. The eternal glory of Jesus Christ, which during his earthly ministry was laid aside, and Jesus displayed in its place a selfless obedience, a glory that he displayed in terms of his selflessness, a willingness to sacrifice himself for sinners. That laying aside of that eternal glory, well, one day he is going to be fully revealed in all of its radiant splendor. In the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, we read that there is a, going to be a revelation of Jesus' glory. And one day the curtain is going to be raised. 
the curtain is going to be raised in the great drama of God's program of redemption. And one day we will see the glory of God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, fully disclosed, not held back at all. And the word that Peter used when he talks about this revealing is the word apocalypsis, the Greek word. Sounds very similar to what? Apocalypse. And we heard this past week, right? Further false predictions, further unreliable uh, uh, predictions about what's going to unfold in our world. They talked about the apocalypse will be this week and there's going to be the destruction of the whole earth and blah, 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 my encounter and all that stuff. Well, the Bible talks about an apocalypse, but the apocalypse is what? The revealing of the glory of God. That's the final chapter that will someday unfold. And I want us to think about what it's going to be like when God completes his work and where it's made visible now for everybody to see the glory of God. So if you've got your Bible there, Titus chapter 2, begin reading in verse 13. Paul reminds Titus of what that consummation is going to look like. He says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now the word, by the way, the word appearing in this particular verse is a different word for appearing in the Greek. It's a word that means from which we get the word epiphany. It means brightness. It means glorious manifestation. And so one day it's going to be evident for all of the human race to see that God is an all-glorious God. And that God is worthy of all honor, he's worthy of all worship, and someday people, everybody, of every tongue and tribe and nation in this world, they will see that God truly is worthy of such worship and glory. And one day Jesus will be acknowledged as the great and glorious God and Savior that he really is. And the hope that Paul alludes to and mentions here in Titus chapter 2 is not like the way we use the word hope. I hope to see it next year. Some of us don't know we can really say for sure, I'll see you next year, right? But the word hope here is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is not a future outcome which will possibly take place. When, when Paul mentions that there's a hope of the coming of Christ, he's talking about the hope of God's glory is fully manifested and revealed and is guaranteed. It is a divinely promised certitude. Now that's the kind of hope we need to hang on to and refocus our thoughts again on remembering what? What does the final pieces of the puzzle look like? It's a certain, an absolutely certain guaranteed conclusion of the revealing of the glory of Christ. And while we're waiting and looking at all these pieces still being trying to put together here, may I remind you that what we know to be true, the primary problem of the human race until that day comes is that the, we as people all are seeking our own glory. That's the way we're bent. And we wish we were God. We wish that we would have the world arranged according to our plans. Maybe that went through your mind the other day when you were, I hope you weren't, but maybe you were out yesterday in your car trying to go somewhere, stuck in traffic, going nowhere. I mean, it's unbelievable. 25, going to the mall, don't even think about it. it, it is, you're not going anywhere. You're just sitting there. There's a sense in which, as you're sitting there saying, I just wish what? I just wish people would just part out of the way and just let my car go right through there. That's what I want. I just want what I want. I want to get through and I want to do what I want to do. Get out of my way. 
We all are bent that way. But there's going to come a day when the eternal glory of Christ is going to be made visible. The entire human race is going to be made aware of the one who really is worthy of glory. And no one is going to be able to escape that unveiling. No one's going to ignore it. No one's going to turn aside from it and sort of think, well, this is no big deal. Because Jesus finished the work the Father gave him to do at his first advent. We can be absolutely sure that he will restore the world back the way it was before the fall. Full of his glory from coast to coast, from sea to shining sea, will be the glory of Christ someday. And the writers of Scripture noted again and again in order to remind the rejected followers of Jesus that the dishonoring of God and the dishonoring of the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it will not go on endlessly. The world will not go from evil to more evil to worse and worse corruption as we see generationally in our day. And I've seen it in my lifetime. I know I heard my parents talk about it in their lifetime. And one day God's perfections, His holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His truth, His goodness, His love will once again be appreciated in every square inch of His universe as it was designed to be. Someday He'll make it that way again. And the last act of God's drama will unfold according to God's timetable. And He will receive the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. That is the promise of Christ's first coming because he did complete what Christ gave him to do. Now I want us to think about a second thing here. The future glory that we talk about, these end pieces of the puzzle of God's redemption, it was promised and provided for. Here also I want to think about a verse found in Romans chapter 5. Maybe you can find your way to Romans chapter 5, page 1343. Jesus, for a little while, in his first advent, was made lower than angels. He endured suffering, the worst of all suffering, death on the cross. But that same Jesus who endured that now is crowned with glory and honor. And because Jesus laid aside his glory, he suffered for sinners like you and me on the cross and was raised from the dead and successfully defeated Satan and broke the grip of the curse of sin. The writer to Hebrews reminds us that Jesus would bring many sons to glory. He is not just in this for himself. Jesus is involved in the process of saying, I want to bring many children to glory with me. And since Jesus once for all paid the debt of sin for those who repent and trust fully in Christ alone, he has secured for those who believe and trust in him our justification, our being declared right with him. And we can rejoice confidently and boast about a hope of glory that we have because of Christ and all he's done for us. Look at this verse now in chapter 5 of Romans, a great, great passage of scripture. Uh, we easily could uh, unpack this. There's so much in these words here, but it's glorious truths. The hope of every Christian. Therefore, we read in verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult, we boast in the hope of the glory 
of God. According to these verses, the enmity that at one time existed between us as sinners, rebellious sinners, and a holy God has now been erased if we are in Christ and trusting in him and surrendered to him and repented of our sins and placed our faith in Christ, we now what? The enmity is gone. We're on good terms with God. And our standing now as believers, we're now in this sphere of grace. And we stand before God in this sphere of grace where we're dealing with God and we live every day in the realm of grace. And then he goes on to say that we are forgiven children of God and we're awaiting the ultimate effect of justification and that is what? Enjoying the glorious, final resting place of heaven. Apostle John thought about the hope of glory. He said, Beloved, now we are the children of God. He's talking about the benefits of what Christ has done. We now enjoy a relationship to God as children. It has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, when we get to that final part of the puzzle over here, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Because of what Christ accomplished at his first coming, sinners like you and me, who consistently and continually fail to glorify God as we should, we have a hope of glory that is nothing short than amazing. We do deserve to be cast away from the presence of God's glory. We are promised that we will be brought by Jesus into the eternal enjoyment of God's radiant splendor one day. And not only will we enjoy that privilege of seeing that, but the Bible goes on to say that we will actually partake of that glory. We will be partakers of the glory. What do you say, what are you talking about? Well, we're not just going to observe God's glory, we're going to share in that glory. Colossians 3 verse 4 says this, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We will be revealed in glory. And even more significant is Romans 8, where he says, Since we are the children of God, we're heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And he goes on then to say, And we will also be glorified with Christ. So that we ourselves will share in the glory of Christ. Jesus took our sin so that we might partake his glory. The gospel declares that Jesus took on himself our rags of unrighteousness, our rags of rebellion and law-breaking, and his glorious robes of righteousness are freely bestowed on us on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone. And one day we will fully enjoy his glory because why? Because our nature will be restored so that we can adequately appreciate and stop focusing on our own seeking of glory and enjoy the glory of the one we were made to enjoy and enter into his glory and we will reflect back to him the awesomeness of his own glory. What an amazing conclusion and final pieces that have yet to be uh, fully constructed on the end. But we get the outline of what it's going to be someday. You say, well, what does that have to do with where I am now? I'm glad you asked that question. That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. Number three. I want us to think about future glory and the practical implications of that glory. The writers of Scripture refer to our waiting for the glorious consummation in the context not of a world that's wonderful and great and enjoyable in every way, 
Those who wrote the scriptures did so writing in a world where there was suffering, a world of struggles in a sin-cursed world, people who were having a very difficult time of it. So I want us to turn back, if you will, to Titus 2, if you please, one more time. Page 1418 in your Bible. Titus 2, verse 13. Actually, you can look at Titus 1, if you will. Here, Paul reminds Titus of the practical implications of this hope of the appearing of Jesus' glory. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he contrasts people who profess to know God. They talk the talk. They've got all these uh, you know, ways of describing how much they have insights into God, and they understand Him, and they, under, they hear Him talking to them, or whatever they claim to know God. But if you look at their life, chapter 1, verse 16 of Titus, you look at their life, and there's, their deeds deny the fact that they know God. Why? Because their life is characterized by disobedience. They're not following God's ways. They're not following Jesus Christ. They're disobeying Him as a general way of life. So Paul then is going to try to help bring Titus into the awareness. Listen, Titus, in your ministry, this is what you've got to emphasize. You've got to emphasize and connect the fact that if this is the final picture of what God's glory is all about, God's glory, and that we someday as believers will enter into that glory, he says, tie those things together and help them see how that's going to make a difference today. And look what he does. Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, listen here. Titus, you've got to give instruction to some of those older believers, some of those men who are uh, wiser and older, been around a while. They are to be temperate people. They're to be dignified individuals who are sensible in how they live their life. They've got to realize that they're impacting the younger generation of men around them and that how they conduct their life will make a big impact on those people as they watch how they live their life. How they, how, are they sensible? Are they people who are uh, dignified in how they conduct themselves? Paul says, but not just with women. He says, how about older women? Christian older women, verses 3 through 5. He says they're not to be people who just gossip all the time, using Facebook just to talk about everybody's, you know, all their business about this and that, whatever. That's not what they should, I'm not saying don't use Facebook. I'm saying don't use it as a means of gossip. And then not to, they, but they should be involved in a positive ministry, utilizing their experience, their understanding and insight in the, in the challenges of life and learning what it means to follow Christ. And they should have an impact on the younger women around them investing in the lives of younger women who are facing numerous challenges in this complex world we live in today and who feel torn and pulled in every direction. And those who are married, they should be teaching them more about how to, how to love their husbands, how to love their children, to be subject to their husbands. Help, help them in their marital struggles for those who are married. And they also can be godly examples for other young women around them, showing them how to serve and, 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 and joyously give them their lives away and be, be those who help love other people and love uh, uh, those who are not believers. And then younger men, he says, they're to show themselves, verses uh, five, 6 and following, says they're to be examples of good deeds, to live a dignified life. Don't be a goof-off. Don't be a person who just takes your freedom because you don't have a lot of responsibility and just be a person that blows it all away, wastes time, play video games all day, every day, all night long. Not saying don't ever play, just saying don't make that the overall pattern of your life. He says... You can make a difference. You can make a big impact in your life. Why? Because you're designed to what? In everything you do, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, in all that you do, do for the glory of God. Because we are designed, we are created, we are built for glory. 
He even goes on and says, okay, well, let's make a more practical application. You say, well, that has nothing to do with how I handle work. Oh, yes, it does. Paul takes and applies this. He says this, the thought of glory someday should have an impact on how you deal with your everyday work. He uses the concept of bond slaves, which are people who were one form of work. And I realize it's not like our form of slavery. These are people who were craftsmen and uh, people, who were, uh, people who were hired to do work ar- around different estates there in Rome. But he says, don't steal from your employer. Apparently that was a widespread problem. He says, well, don't do that. Be honest and ethical how you handle your, your, your affairs at work. And he says, and be subject to your boss. Don't be arguing with your boss all the time as if you are the one who knows more than your boss. In other words, learn to have a submissive attitude. That means you can't offer a good idea every so often, but have a submissive attitude, verses 9 and 10. You see, the future consummation and the revealing of God's glory is to, us, is to serve as an incentive as a motivator to live differently now from most people who live their life primarily for themselves. If it works for me, then it must be right. That's how most people live their life. If I can take this from work and they'll not notice it, then big deal, I'll take it. And he says, don't live that way. Live for the glory of God right now. And live for the hope of that glory that someday is going to remind you it's going to be so awesome someday you can be helped, what? You can help people realize that there is a great day coming by you living for God's glory makes God seem all the greater now. So they might join us in preparing for that day. We're to honor Christ with our lifestyles so that we, at some day, we await to hear Christ say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We're waiting for those final pieces down here. In the meantime, if we are saying we're followers of Jesus, he says, you can adorn or make attractive the gospel. You can make the teaching that I'm giving you, as Titus brings the teaching about God's glory, you can make that attractive to people as you live a life that's commendable and pleasing to Christ. Rather, so many people apparently in in the time of Titus they must have been thinking, oh, brother, I've got to live for Jesus now, and so I guess I have to do this stuff. You know, I can't do that stuff anymore that I used to do. And, you know, I guess, well, I'm really hesitant to, yeah, well, I can make excuses about, you know, this is really drudgery. You know, I'm, this is just something I, 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 I find that obeying Christ is just miserable. And I complain about it all the time. And, uh, and I feel like I'm sucking on a lemon all day. That's why people see me as a Christian, is I'm just this miserable person who's just constantly focusing on what I can't do, rather than focusing on what? I'm called to live. God's promised me glory someday. Look what Christ went through. He lost and laid aside his glory so that he might lead me into glory. Therefore, I'm motivated to serve him. I want to glorify him. How am I living my life? It's about him. It's a motivator to glorify God wherever God assigns you wherever God assigns you right now. That could be at home, it could be at school, at work, the people that you're interacting with in your world. You can tie the glory that God is working in your life to make you glorify, make you like Christ. You can tie that together with how you live right now. Here's a second thought about, I want to make practical thoughts about this idea of glory the hope of being glorified one day and the partaking of the glory of God someday. We are so assured of these things 
we also can be reassured that God, who began a good work, he's going to bring that work to completion. Sometimes when I start a puzzle, I think to myself, man, I give up. There is no way you're ever going to put all these pieces together. There is a gazillion of these pieces, and it, there's no way you're ever going to put that together. And I'm, all, I'm always thinking, too, I'm so skeptical. I'm always thinking, huh, hate to break it to you, but there's a couple pieces missing from this puzzle. You know, that's what I'm always thinking. You know, unless, the pack, unless the box uh, had the plastic around, even then you sort of wonder sometimes, but uh, you know, if it doesn't have plastic around, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, well, you put all this work into it, you're never going to really finish it. But the fact is, the more we read the gospel, the more we understand what Christ accomplished, we can be assured that no longer, there will come a day when no longer pride will pollute relationships. No longer will we struggle with temptation and fail in that struggle again and again. No longer will we see the fruit of sinful desires that, that evidence themselves in quarreling and, and, and all sorts of fightings in our human relationships. No longer will we be fearing other people and yearning for the approval of other people like so many of us live under the fear of what happens if people reject me and they see what I'm really like and they know the real me. No longer will thorns, no longer will thorns infest the ground. No longer will hatred and violence destroy lives. No longer will injustice have the upper hand that we see in our world where so many things that are horrendous that take place and you never really feel like you ever see justice done. No longer will the shadows of depression linger over the souls of people who were made to be filled with joy in the presence of God. Those who have been justified by faith, those who enjoy peace with God, will finally be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29. We will finally be made like Jesus as much as we possibly, as finite people can be made into the image or the character of Christ. We will be full of love, full of joy, full of peace and patience, kind people, people who are good, people who are faithful, people who are trustworthy. We'll be gentle, meek, and self-controlled. All of our passions will be reined in someday. Won't they be awesome? I think about the challenge of seeing everything come together and seeing someday God finish the work he began in us. One of the toys that we used to get, or we used to see uh, given to our kids, I brought some pieces of it, today with me is connects. Are you familiar with connects? Some of you are like, give me the connection here, I don't get it. All right, here we go. Connects is a piece of plastic that are formed into shorter pieces that are long and longer pieces and all different lengths of connecting pieces. I call them the uh, girders, if you will. And then they have these really funky little connecting pieces. These little strange things that are all sorts of colors. Each color represents a different shape, a different way that you can connect the different pieces. And they just snap in there, and they hold together if you snap them correctly. So it also had these big wheels and all kinds of stuff. So we got this nice set of connect, connects. And get supposed to put this thing together with gazillions and billions of these little pieces, all different, all colors. And you're supposed to make this. Those of you who are listening on the, uh, over the uh, recorded, this is, I'm holding up a big 
box with a Ferris wheel type thing. Guess what? You can also make it into this one, which is even more complicated and more amazing. And we put this thing together one Christmas day. It was exciting for a while. <laughs> and as we got closer to the end, we see the wheel. It's all there. We see the pieces, and we got the motor in there. And we got everything. You can tell how it's going to work, and you're like, oh, man, it's great. And you're putting the final pieces on, trying to read that directions again, going back. Why is this not connecting to that one? And then you turn the battery on and you say, okay, let's go. We think we got this thing going. You go, and the thing won't go around. Why is that? Because some piece wasn't snapped the right way. So you've got to retrace your steps and go back. Oh, yeah, here's the piece. That's the wrong piece. Got to put that one. We sat there and did that for I don't know how long. So I thought, who invents this crazy stuff? Is this like, you know, designed to pull your hair out? But then you finally what? Then you finally get it right, and the thing goes around. And you're like, finally, finally. That's the way I feel like life is in this world, isn't it? Finally. Finally, we will operate the way God designed us to operate. It's going to happen. Not because I'm a better person than you, not because I'm the, I've got my act together. My confidence is because the Lord of glory laid aside his glory, and he's done what's necessary to get me to where I need to be, and you where you need to be, trusting in God the Son, Jesus Christ. Some of us get weary of our fallenness and our failings. May I encourage you to realize there is that final day where we will enter into Christ's glory. He will make us like himself. We will work the way we're made to work. Don't give up. Remember God's at work. One more thing. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, page 1407. One final practical implication is, for those who are in Christ Jesus, the consummation, as I've sort of touched on this a little bit before, it's going to be a day of unspeakable joy. Think about it. Everything the way it's supposed to be, we are finally the way we're supposed to be, and we're entering into the glory of God, and there's blessing all around us. We will be marveling at God. We'll marvel at His glory. We'll marvel at His grace. We'll marvel at His mercy shown to us. Psalm 16 describes that day. The day of consummation is a day of full and complete joy. Not partial joy, not a little bit of joy. Complete joy. You can't describe how joy-filled you'll be. And that pleasures we will enjoy forever at God's right hand. It just doesn't get any better than that. But my friends, that's the one side of the equation. We've talked about that kind of glory. But I want you to know there's the opposite is going to be true for those who reject Jesus Christ. Those who rely upon their own efforts, those who rely upon their own attempts to gain their own righteousness by acts of piety and things that they are trying to do to somehow be better, to try to improve themselves so that somehow they will be presentable to God. And those who do not believe and obey the Son of God will have the wrath of God abiding on them forever. You say, you're a little arrogant to say that, aren't you? Now I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. John chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son, notice the interesting contrast between believe and obey. The idea of believe, if I truly believe, I will obey Christ as a pattern of life, not perfectly, but that'll be the pattern of life. Who is obey the Son, if he does not obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's what scripture says. 
And the contrast is going to be so vivid. On the one hand, there will be glory. On the other hand, there will be misery. On the one hand, there will be conformity to Christ. On the other hand, there will be condemnation assigned by Christ. There will be brightness and fullness of joy on the one hand. There will be darkness and complete regret live that way forever. Regret, regret, regret. There will be eternal life. There will be eternal destruction. Look at this verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In other words, he's saying God is a God of justice. If you're receiving persecution someday wrongfully, people are misusing their power, he said they're going to be held accountable someday. Verse 7, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He's describing what? The outlines of that piece of puzzle over here, right? Verse 8. What will happen at that day? He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his power. Those are sobering words. Absolutely sobering words. For people made for glory, that is going to be the reality for some. And notice what he says in verse 10. Here's the contrast. This vivid contrast is so stark in this passage, it just, you can't miss it. Verse 10. When he comes, that is Jesus, when Jesus comes to be what? Glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. There will be those who marvel at the glory of Jesus and enter into that glory. There will be those who are in absolute misery, consumed with themselves, rejecting Jesus and suffering the consequences for it. And my call to you today, my friend, is to come to Christ who came to lift us from our own fallen misery and self-focus, and he lifts us up. He gives us a glory, partakers of glory through Christ. Trust him, obey him, love him, serve him. Find your hope in the glory that's yet to come in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, we once again humble ourselves before you. It is just so profound, Lord, to think of what you have done as we looked at this idea of the thought of this large program of redemption. Lord, we can't understand why you didn't give up on us, why you didn't just turn your back on this evil, corrupt world who turned its back on you. How we praise you that you're a God who is full of mercy and compassion. How we thank you that your love has sent to us a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the all-glorious one. How we thank you that he laid aside his glory and he offers himself <clears throat> to those 
who are in their misery of sin, who need and desire glory, Lord, we thank you that we can receive that kind of promise through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, who is not one who seeks and desires to obey Jesus Christ, to submit to him, to yield to his lordship, to trust in him alone for their salvation, forgiveness of sin. Lord, I pray that you would draw them even today to pray that prayer, to seek you and your mercy, and to ask the Lord Jesus Christ for that free gift and to trust him and what he's done on the cross and his resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would fill those of us who have known the gift of eternal life, fill us with a sense of motivation to live for your glory in everything we do. Help us, Lord, to have a vision of of keeping before us the end pieces of the puzzle, to remember that you are awaiting a day of great glory. We're meant to live for your glory. Lord, help us to to be aware of everything we do in every realm we are in life. We can be making much of you by the way in which we live. Give us zeal, Lord, to live for you, to serve you, and to serve others for you. And we pray, Father, that you might be glorified because everything is from you and through you and to you. We ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen.